Now let's pray. Lord God in heaven, thank you so much for being with us and um, your kindness this, this last week. Lord, thank you for beautiful days to thaw out from the ice and snow and uh, to see things starting to bloom and blossom. Thank you, Lord, for uh, caring for us and watching over us. We pray that you continue to be with Skip and Paula and watch over them and their needs right now and Skip as he goes, finishes up his physical therapy and as they make plans for the future, Lord, we pray that you guide them and, and help them. Lord, bless us in our time with this class and guide us and that we would be encouraged and we would be able to pass on the things that we believe to others around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are still in our class here. Why do you do that? I've been asking that for years. Why do you do that? My kids still ask that question. Dad, why do you do that? Okay, so um, those are the categories. Uh, we spent quite a few weeks in worship. Uh, now we're in church government starting today. That lasts probably a couple of weeks. We'll move into complementarianism, uh, who's John Calvin, the catechisms, and church membership. And so today we're doing church government. We're starting church government. So again, just remember the purpose is, so anybody that's hanging around us, that's lingering around, please invite them. Uh, it's so that way, hopefully, that uh, even if they don't agree with us in the end, if they can say, you know, at least these people really care about the Scriptures and are trying to be faithful to Scripture, then I feel like we've succeeded. And I'll say that over and over again because I think that's an important category to have in our head. We can't always prevail on people and get them to agree with us, but if we can get them to say, you know, at least they believe Jesus and the Scriptures, I think that is a happy place to be. You can go a long way with that, okay? And then for us, just remember, I mean, our faith is meant to be passed on. It's not meant for us to hold on to and, and hide and, and that's it. It's meant for us to pass it on to other adults, to our grandkids, our kids, and so forth. And so I'm, I'm hoping that you'll find uh, those of you who've got all this figured out with the rest of everybody, right? I hope you can feel like you can have it better figured out how to pass it on, maybe things to say. And it's really been fun going through this, uh, how many times I hear, have heard little conversations of, oh, I didn't know that. You know, and I've been a Presbyterian for years, which is great. So today we're going to talk about church government. There are three basic overarching forms of church government throughout history. Okay, can everybody read that up there? All right, the one that most people are familiar with uh, from... Um, from news reports and everything else is what's more called uh, hierarchical or prelacy or episcopacy or whatever. Um, and that is more of a top-down, you have authority up high from whether if it's uh, Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or through patriarchs or popes, all the way down through cardinals, archbishops, bishops, down that way. It is a, that's a Greek word. Episcopal is a Greek word, episkopos that was in the King James Version translated as bishops, okay? And uh, it's 1 Timothy 3, and we'll look at that passage in a minute. But it's very much a top-down form this way. It looks very military, which actually fits historically because um, very Roman. Um, Rome was a very military, militaristic nation or empire. And so as time went by, the church began to adapt and absorb much of what was going on in Rome in reference to leadership and so forth. Happens all the time. We're humans. We're very much about imitating 
things around us. And so that makes sense. I'm not saying it was right. I'm just saying it makes sense. I see how it happened. But that's the normal one that most people think of uh, when you start talking about church government. The one that's probably more prevalent in many ways, at least as a grassroots kind of thing, is congregational. And that's where the, current, the members of the congregation really, in the end, are the authorities. And that could be greater and lesser. It depends on the church. All right? I was meeting with a Baptist minister the other day, and his church, um, it's a great church, they're doing great, and their form of government is actually closer to ours inside as a church, and so the congregation doesn't have quite the final say on things. But a lot of churches, I remember uh, as a young man, <clears throat> a young kid growing up in a Baptist church, sometimes everybody cringed when it came to business meetings because it'd be, you know, brass knuckle fights on occasion, you know, metaphorically speaking, of course. Um, but usually a single pastor leads it, uh, maybe the deacons, maybe they'll have deacons that act kind of like elders, but they're really more of the businessmen of the congregation and so forth. And they're independent. Each church is usually independent from all the other churches. They may be in a, have a federation, but they're very independent. Okay? And so this form of church government, this form of church government takes a long time to get things to happen because you've got to start at the top. So by the time you get things moved to the top, and then it comes back down. It takes forever for things to change there. Here, it's immediate change. You know, if, um, if you don't like the leadership, they're gone. Right? Just that quick. It can be, it can be that quick. I've seen that happen. So, um, a much faster, which is not good necessarily. Speed is not always the best thing. Okay? And then this is Presbyterian. And that too is a Greek word. Presbyteros or presbyteroi means elders. This means overseer. Bishop, this is an elder, okay? And this one is actually that the authority, in a sense, runs really through the elders of the pre- uh, uh, who are related. I'll, I'll get into all the other church dynamics in a minute uh, later in all these other connections. It's a connectional church because there's an accountability structure for all the elders. That's one of the strong points for this, theoretically, is that there's accountability. This one doesn't have accountability outside of the congregation. And I'm not demeaning anybody. I'm just telling you the kind of the nuts and bolts facts, okay? And so this one's uh, got accountability that uh, goes from the local church up to the presbytery and then the general assembly and so forth. So those are the three basic broad categories of church government, okay? And in that, so this one, by the way, would not just be, um, would not just be Catholic and Orthodox, but Anglican, Episcopal, Methodist, African Methodist, Episcopal, even Lutheran. They follow more of this hierarchical Okay, and so and then those mostly Baptist and Bible churches, the congregationally Baptist and Bible churches, and things like that, non uh, non denominational, and then this is the Presbyterian, and this one would be um, the Christian Missionary Alliance. Most people don't know that, but they're actually a Presbyterian system because one of their founders was a Presbyterian. Okay, and so they follow more of a Presbyterian system, the Christian Reformed Church, and so forth. So, any questions on this? Is this more than you've ever learned before in all your life? Maybe, right? But it's good for... Yes? Yes. 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 Yeah, congregational... The the denomination, the congregational church, there's a couple here in town. Um, They actually... Theirs is a little bit... So theirs is kind of unique a little bit because it is a morphing or a conglomeration of both of these, Presbyterian and Congregational, in a sense. 
it's probably, I mean, they're definitely congregational, but they have a little bit more connectionalism and theoretically some accountability above the congregation, but it's not real tight as far as I know. Okay? So like the Church of Christ, the United Church of Christ, not the Church of Christ <laughs> that we came out of, but the United Church of Christ actually fits more of that congregational, what you're thinking of, that congregational aspect. All right, so that'll confuse you or not. I don't know. But hopefully that's helpful because, because you need to know those. You, when you're, somebody is telling you, if somebody's talking to you about decisions in your church, so this happened this last week. We were, we were meeting, uh, yeah, Wednesday. We saw so a meeting for our, our regular monthly prayer meeting with uh, some other fellow ministers from Baptist churches and other things. And, and so my Baptist friends are like, well, why don't you make these decisions faster? And so able to say, well, I know your context. Right? And that's the way you function. This is the way we function. Oh, I didn't know that. So they didn't know that. So they didn't, they didn't realize all the different levels of accountability. So, All right, any questions at all? All right, so within the Presbyterian system, I'm just going to give you this. And so this will help out, Tony, a little bit as you're thinking about what we mean by Presbyterian and so forth, right? So each congregation, you've got your congregation. And in a congregation, you have your elders. That's the E. It's not, that's not Eeyore. Right? That's elders, E for elders, okay? And then uh, the elders are leading the congregation, but the elders are connected to a regional body of other elders from congregations called it's called a presbytery. Okay? And then so you have you have multiple presbyteries in a region. And so then the presbytery, which is these elders of these congregations, comes together as a general assembly. Okay, and so there's a, a level of accountability. There's people being talked to all along the way. I appreciate this diagram, by the way, because it's kind of lateral instead of hierarchical looking. So I really appreciate that. Okay, because like for example, in our denomination, the general assembly just cannot come down and say you must. There has to be this other aspect here going this route. This has to be some agreement here. So anyways, in our denomination, I just noticed some statistics. I went and looked on um, our denominational website, um, and these are the 2020 statistics, okay? So we have 1,580 congregations and 380 mission churches. Okay, that was as of 2020, all right? The only number of elders that we're actually t- keeping tally of, which is unfortunate, but I understand why, is just teaching elders. That's pastors, and we have 5,117 in our denomination, um, if the uh, <coughs> excuse me, so if if I understand correctly, ruling elders throughout the denomination is at least equal to how many pastors we have or higher. So I'll give you an example. In our our presbytery, our presbytery, we have like ninety six ruling elders and forty teaching elders. So the ruling elders outnumber the teaching elders. I went through and counted them up just the other day, and so if that runs. Um, pretty standard throughout the, pre- the denomination that that's fairly normal. So it'll be anywhere from an equal number of ruling elders to higher overall, okay? And so that's, the pres- that's that. And so then we have 88 presbyteries. So they go throughout the U.S. They're just different regions. They're really regionally oriented, okay? So like ours, Hills and Plains Presbytery, covers all of Oklahoma, in northwest Arkansas, from Fayetteville up to, the, to Missouri, and then right in Joplin, Springfield, Missouri. And that's our presbytery. 
okay? And then right next door is Covenant Presbytery, which runs forever. I mean, it goes into Nashville from that part of Arkansas all the way to Nashville and part of Mississippi. Um, so there are, these are more regionally, okay? And then, we, of course, we have only one General Assembly. Dun, 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 dun. Okay. Any questions on this? Anything I can clarify? Does that make sense? Yes. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was surprised when I saw it. But I remember when I was in seminary, uh, I remember uh, Ligon Duncan telling us that we have a glut of pastors in our denomination. And so uh, I was talking to um, a friend of mine who's at, in Potomac Presbytery. His name is Dave Silvernell. He's been involved in the denomination for 100 years or something like that. Just a joke. It's hyperbole. But he said probably about 40% of those teaching elders are not in churches. They're doing, they're serving out of bounds. They're either in churches that are in other denominations or they're doing, um, they're just without a call or they're serving in ministry. So like Paul Tripp is a teaching elder in PCA, but he's a counselor, right? Yes. Uh, many times, not always. Yeah. 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 I remember when I was in RTS, only about three or four of the professors were, were ordained. The rest weren't. And Ligon, Duncan, when he became somewhere up in the hierarchy of RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, he said all of our professors need to be ordained. And then they need to serve in churches. So they were actually serving in small little rural churches, most of them. I assume it's still the same. But yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. So they're, they're not necessarily in churches. But we just have a, we have a, a plentitude of people who are ordained as pastors. Yes? Could, I, I'm sure we know. I mean, we've got the statistics somewhere, but I haven't looked for it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you were, I mean, if you would take out 40% of that 5,100 and then start going back down. So some churches, I mean, like Park Cities, for example, has like 4,000 teaching elders or something. I mean, it's a joke. But they have, I think they probably have 20 or something like that. And then they have about 20, if I remember correctly, they have like 20 elders, ruling elders on their session as well. So they have, they try to equal it out. But then most churches, and as a denomination when we started, most of our churches were probably about 100 or less in just number. And so, you know, the, just the finances, they could only support one, and then you'd have two, three, four, five ruling elders and so forth. It's oh, uh, I'd have to go back and look. I don't remember. Ours is, ours actually, surprisingly, as young as it is, is kind of in the middle. So we were part of North Texas Presbytery, and therefore we were one of the largest presbyteries in the U.S., and so when we petitioned to start our own presbytery and pull out of North Texas Presbytery and a little piece of Covenant Presbytery, um, it was great. Every, the denomination was happy. The, both presbyteries were happy because it actually trims them down a little bit. Our, our, our presbytery, about 22. Yeah. And we've got... Um, is Joplin, is it... Is Joplin particularized yet? Yeah, it is. Okay. So we have... We have so there's... Uh, King's Cross, is that three mission churches? The King's Cross, that's one mission church. We got three three mission churches 
on top of that. So, but that mission churches don't normally have elders. They're borrowing elders from other churches. Oh, okay, 22 is counting the mission churches. So we actually have um, tw- uh, 19 particularized churches. Yes. Oh, you know, I don't know. I just looked at the statistic. There you go. And by the way, Wes is our Presbytery State of Clerk. Heritage is taking over Hills of Plains Presbytery, I want you to know. I'm the AC chairman. He's the State of Clerk. All right, so that, does that help out any? Kind of give you a picture? Okay. I didn't see any heads nod or sleep or doll off or anything. So let's talk about church government. And this is just, I just found this sign. I thought this was funny. But there's a place and a value that's when you go local, you grow local. I just thought that was pretty cool. Cool. And that's kind of what you have in biblical church leadership. So we're going to run through these scriptures really quick, as fast as we can, starting with the Old Testament. There's, understand, there's so much more I can tell you. I can show you other passages, but we're just going to run through these. So let's start with Exodus chapter 18. So here's Israel coming out of the wilderness, or coming out of Egypt. They're out in the wilderness. You've got to remember this, like 600,000 men, so that doesn't count the women and the children and grand, you know, uh, yeah, women and children and any stragglers. There's actually stragglers too. So if you, if you double that, you've got at least one and a half million or more people, okay? That's the size of the greater Oklahoma City area, population-wise, right? And Moses is leading them, and he's the only leader at this point. So... So then his father-in-law comes. Those father-in-laws, God bless them. His father-in-law comes. So we're going to pick up at verse 13 very quickly. Next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, father-in-law. Yes. Now obey my voice. I will give you... Advice and God will be, uh, God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you in small matters. Uh, they shall decide themselves, etc. And it just goes on from there. But notice the, and, and Moses does it, and God is pleased with it, okay? And that becomes a standard, multiple leadership, right? A, a multiplicity of leadership and the value of it, okay? And the importance of it. So you already have this early on in Israel's history. And so we could go into further into that because it's actually more of an appellate kind of system. So you got your leaders of 50s and the hundreds and thousands. So it's kind of an appellate system but it's also making sure that everybody has leadership close to local leadership, okay? Any questions about Exodus 18? 
And so then, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 19. Let's go to Second Chronicles chapter 19. So in that sense of multiple, of a multiplicity of leaders, um, this is some years later, and Jehoshaphat is reforming Judah. And I want you to notice what he does in this context, this framework of a multiplicity of leaders, one of the things he does with the Levites specifically, and you've got to remember the Levites are everywhere. Levites are not only in Jerusalem. They're all over uh, Judah, okay, all over the place. And so here's what Jehoshaphat does. Moreover, verse 8, Moreover, in Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat appointed certain Levites and priests and heads of families of Israel. So do you hear kind of the multiplicity and the areas that they're covering? to give judgment for Yahweh and to decide disputed cases. They had their seat at Jerusalem and he charged them, thus you shall do in the fear of Yahweh and faithfulness with your whole heart whenever a case comes to you from your brothers who live in their cities concerning bloodshed law, commandments, statutes, or rules, then you shall warn them that they may not incur guilt before Yahweh and wrath may not come upon you and your brothers. Thus you shall do and you shall not incur guilt. And behold, Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all matters of Yahweh, and Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the governor of the house of Judah, and all the king's matters. And the Levites will serve you as officers. Deal courageously, and may Yahweh be with the upright. Again, just the point I'm getting across is the multiplicity of leaders, and the leaders are judging, but they're also, you have to go read the rest of that chapter, they're also involved in, um, in teaching and making sure that all the people in there fear of influence, know the law of the Lord, and so forth, okay? So yeah, I'm just trying to give you the sense that from the Old Testament, you have this principle of multiple leadership, and it's local, okay? It's not off at a distance somewhere, okay? Does that make sense? Everybody okay with that? All right, so let's do this then. We're going to, I'm going to, it's going to be a little mental exercise. Go to James 2. So you come to the New Testament. James was Probably, James and Galatians were probably the first two letters written in the New Testament, very likely. James was probably even just a little bit before Galatians, possibly. So James is writing to primarily uh, believers who are Jewish ethnically. And so it's very interesting. And you won't see this unless your translation translates it this way, so I'll point it out as we go along. So I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus uh, Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. Does anybody have a different translation for that word assembly? Verse 2, James 2, verse 2. Is everybody using the ESV? Are we all using one translation? That's one. I'm getting ready to throw some Greek. The Greek word for assembly is synagogue, synagogue, when they come into your synagogue, okay? So if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your synagogue and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, sit here in the place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit at my feet, have you not then made a distinction among yourselves and so forth? The point I'm trying to get, I want to get across here is I want you to notice that the early church followed, was even called, their assemblies were called synagogues. They followed a synagogue pattern. We know historically, it didn't take much to go look it up, we know historically that in each synagogue, in each synagogue, 
there was a multiplicity of local leaders. Okay? There was a little bit of a hierarchy because you have the ruler of the synagogue, but you also have elders of the synagogues. But you, you still have a multiplicity of leaders. And so you, ne- you will never see anywhere in the New Testament where it defends the need to have multiple leaders. Nowhere. You, you can go from Matthew all the way to Revelation. It never says, now look, here's the reason why you need to have multiple leadership. The reason, the reason that is is because it was already brought in and assumed as the New Testament was established. Does that make sense? It was already assumed because that was what was in place in the synagogue. You have Old Testament precedent. And so they just brought it in because this is the biblical pattern from the Old Testament through to the New. Does that make sense? So there's not going to be any defense of the need for having multiple leaders because that's already in the DNA. Okay. Did I bore you to death with that? So... Let's go then to Acts chapter 14. I just want to show you some of this and then we're going to move and talk specifically about the two, if you want to call them offices, we'll talk about offices. So in Acts 14, not 4, 14. Sorry, I was in chapter 4. <laughs> Acts 14, verses 19 through 23. Um, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the apostles... I always think that's interesting, that sometimes I run across people that... I actually received a card from someone one time that called herself an apostle. And I think of passages like that and think, do you really want to be an apostle? But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on to Bar- with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. They had already planted churches in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders, presbyteroi, For them, in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They never defend this, it's just what they did. And what is it that they did? What did they set up in every church that was in each city? Elders, right? So notice a multiplicity of leadership, right? They appointed elders in every city and every church, okay? And probably there was one church in each city, so that makes sense as to why that language sounds almost redundant. So you can see the same if you go to chapter 20. That's actually the, the elders of the Ephesus, of the church in Ephesus in chapter 20. But there's a very important principle. It's a multiple leaders for one congregation. Multiple leaders for one congregation. That's the principle. Okay? So let's go to Philippians chapter 1. And somebody read Philippians 1. Who will read Philippians chapter 1, verse 1? So the Greek word overseers is episkopoi. That's where they get the word episcopal from. But that's episkopoi, the overseers, the bishops, and what else? So already you know, what do you know from that greeting? Yeah, there's, there's two groups or two offices, if you want to call them that, right? There's two groups, two offices. 
And so he's including this letter, not only all the congregation, but the leadership. Um, and, but, and again, it's plural. Both are plural. Episcopoi, Chi, Diakonoi. Right? So it's plural. So there's more than one uh, overseer and there's more than one deacon. Again, we're back to multiple leaders in one congregation. All right. And they're all, and this is local. This is why I had to sign up here. Go local, grow local, right? There you go. All right. Any questions about this? Okay. I didn't see any hands. So let's talk then. Let's start with the, the end of Philippians 1, verse 1. Let's talk about deacons for a minute, okay? And you have on your table, you have the paper I wrote the last time when we installed deacons. We had deacons called Deaconing and Deacons. I'm going to... I encourage you to take it and read it if you've never read it. Uh, there's copies on the end of the seats there. If you've got seats right there, Randy, there's copies right there. Uh, a few copies. Uh, if you're interested in that, if you're not interested, pass it to somebody who is interested. It's okay. You won't hurt my feelings. Here's what we need to know as we think about deacons, or the Greek word diakonos, Okay. So you've heard me say this, uh, Yvonne brought this up sometime back when we were talking about the ministries of the church, okay? What you need to know is that, uh, here's, here's just one of the paragraphs out of that paper. And our self-giving Lord Jesus, who became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, is the enfleshment, the embodiment, the enactment of deaconing. Deacon means servant. And so remember Mark 10, verse 45, what does Jesus say? For even the Son of Man came not to be diakonethani, did not come to be deaconed, served, but to serve diakonesi and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the epitome of deaconing. Okay? And so whether the word deacon is used of the work or the person, it is almost never used of an official office. You can go from one end of the New Testament to the other. It is almost never used of a specific office. It is almost always used of action. Okay? Um, almost completely... Um, well, I just got lost. Whether the, Yeah, it's almost completely used for occupation, not for position... Uh, for occupation, sorry. Not office, but occupation. Not for position, but for practice. Not for... Uh, it's not a focus on a label, but labor. It's the kind of thing we do. Okay? It's almost always and overwhelmingly used of service, gospel-centered, Jesus-shaped, Mark 10, 45, Jesus-shaped service offered to God and for God's people. It's service offered by men, women, girls, boys, ministers, leaders, and members. We are all, because of Jesus, we are all deaconers, deaconing in God's world rescue operation. And that's a super important point. Okay? It's the first thing I need to say is that all the way through the New Testament, sometimes Paul calls himself a deacon. Sometimes he calls Timothy a deacon. Sometimes um, there's a woman in Romans 16 who's called, who's called a deacon, right? There's all these people called deacons, but when you put it in context, you realize it's talking about acts of actually serving. Okay? Almost never is it referring to an office. Now, why am I making a big deal out of this? Because, first off, you're all ministers. If you belong to Jesus, you are all deacons in that sense, right? Of we're all deaconers. We are all meant to serve. There's no room in Christ's church. And there's seasons of life things. Don't get me wrong here. But there's no room for us to sit back and be 
uh, sideline coaches to tell everybody else what to do while we sit back and criticize or whatever. We're all to be engaged. We're all to be deaconing. Why? Because I did not come to be served, but to serve the deacon and give my life as a ransom for many. So we've got to have that principle in place before we can even talk about what the uh, body of deacons is all about. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, any questions about that before I move on? I do have an end goal here. Okay, there are, let's see, one, two, there are two places, 1 Timothy 3 and Philippians 1, that actually talks about the office of deacon, actually mentions the office and actual body of deacons, okay? Again, it's Philippians 1, verse 1, and 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through like 12 or something like that. Oh, 13, there it is. Ah, it'd be good if I just wetted my own thing here. And so, um, so there's only those two places. And you need to remember that because sometimes people will pull in something where it says deacon, and in the context it's referring to acts of service, not an office. And I would pose that that would be Romans 16 about Phoebe. She was not a deaconess in an official capacity. She was actually, it says, Paul goes on to say, she was actually a woman who deaconed, who served by being someone who provided funds and hospitality for the apostles and so forth. Does that make sense? I think it's important to pick up. So let's look at 1 Timothy 3 for a minute. If you have questions, just jump them in there. It's okay. So we're down at verse 8. So deacons, so he's in, he's ta- he just got done talking about elders. We'll come back to chapter 3 in a minute. But he just got done talking about bishops or elders. And now he says deacons. So now you know he's talking about a specific office of deaconers. A specific, set apart, designated body of deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy, not for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus, etc. So notice that there's actually a criteria to be in the position of, the official position of a deacon, okay? And it lays that out, okay? And that Greek word, by the way, is a masculine Greek word for deacon that's used there in those two verses. So the point is, just simply, there, there are two places that mention the office, okay? An actual category. Why would, and here's where some debate comes in, why would Paul then talk about their wives? The Greek word is actually the women. So some would say, see, there could be women deaconesses. We can argue all day long, but I just think the context is very, very clear. He is talking about deacons' wives. Okay? He doesn't ever use the feminine for deacons Okay, when he's talking to them. And if you've ever been a deacon, you know how valuable your wife is in deaconing. Sometimes they're just things, they're just things that you shouldn't do. And your wife is really helpful. Right? That's all I can tell you. Right? And it's just the case. Alright? So it makes good sense. Okay? So here's what I go on to say. These folks, talking about deacons now as an office, these folks are brought out and set up in front as deacons. This is why the criteria 
is so tight the way it is for their qualifications. They're set up in front as deacons. They embody the deaconing of the congregation. They exemplify gospel-centered, Jesus-shaped service offered to God and for God's people and help the deaconing congregation to deacon better. They serve by leading their fellow deacons, minister, deaconers, excuse me. They serve by leading their fellow deaconers, ministers, elders, members, women, men, girls, boys and girls, into deaconing in a Jesus-shaped way. Leadership, I mean, you know, it's good to have leadership, right? I mean, if we just went off and just do your own thing, I mean, it could just be messy, right? It's good to have leadership. Deacons are that leadership in deaconing. That's why that office is there. And what does that mean? You know, how that sets up for their tasks and their purpose, okay? Is they, they're actually leading from the front the congregation to deacon. Does that make sense? That's a simple way to put it. Okay, any questions about any of this very quickly? Yes? Yeah, we, we've always understood uh, a silent if. If he's married, he must be the husband of one wife. Okay? I mean, J. Gresham Machen, for example, when we talk about elders, J. Gresham Machen was never married. Nobody ever had a qualm with that. And that's happened before. We've had single elders and stuff before. Um, it's sensible to have married guys very clearly. Okay? But that's part of the background to some of that. Okay? Yes? Oh, thanks, Mike. I appreciate you opening up that can of worms. You're wonderful. Somebody, let him, don't let him slip on ice outside or anything, okay? Um, yeah. Yes. Yes, there's some here in town. There's one here in town, and they won't ordain deacons, so that way they can appoint women and men and officially as a denomination, we say, we would say you have to have deacons. Now, if you want to say we appoint you in a diaconal capacity, you know, well, that's even in our BCO. The deacons are supposed to actually draw people in to help them do this deaconing, right? So whatever, the title is confusing. They probably, I I would say they shouldn't use that because it confuses things horribly, okay? But, But I think part of it is because I think, I think this is where I'm going with this, and I'm not right with everybody, but I know that part of it is this, is because we have forgotten that all of us are supposed to be deaconing. And everybody's so animated towards an office. I've got to have a title to be important. Well, baloney. I've got a title. I've got to have several titles. I ain't no important. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's important. It's, a, it's significant for us to recognize. And when we get into complementarianism, or actually probably next week, we'll talk a little bit more about hierarchy. But part of the problem is that as Americans, we have a love affair with democracy and we want to democratize Jesus' church and so everybody should have the exact same everything because we want to be egalitarian about everything. We have no concept that actually Jesus has set up something a little bit more hierarchical. There's the other problem. But, so yeah, does that answer your question? Thank you. Can you put that lid back on those worms? Anybody else? Okay.
All right. Um, so the other options, you think about um, Philippians 1. Um, he talks about overseers and deacons. So let's look at Titus 1. Just very quickly, I want to show you that there's actually a synonymity. I think that's the right word. Synonymity. Something like that. Between presbyteroi and episcopoi. It's just different terms for the same body of people. Okay? So let's look at Titus chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 5. He tells Titus why he left him on the island of Crete. And he says, um, verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order. So here's one of the things that remains that needs to be put in order. And appoint presbyteroi, elders, in every town as I directed you. So notice, plural elders in a church in one location. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination for, that's a connecting word, for, so what he said about the presbyteroi goes along with the episcopoi, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He's just emphasizing, but he's using different names for the same group. They're called presbyteroi, they're called episcopoi. Okay, does that make sense? I just want you to see that. And so when you read about bishops, it's also in the New Testament, it's also the body of elders. It's just two different names. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. So we've already seen the principle. Also, by the way, listen to this morning's sermon because I'll just providentially, I'm going to be talking about 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4, which is about elders. And so listen to this morning's sermon as I get into this in a little bit more detail. So the biblical principle is plural leaders for a singular congregation. In church history, as you've heard me tell you, that changes around the third, the second, around the third and fourth century to where it becomes a singular leader over multiple congregations. Okay, and St. Jerome in his letter 146 says the reason why we did that because it helped us fight against the heretics. Okay, but he knew that they had changed the biblical pattern. Okay, that's interesting. So here's a biblical pattern. Multiple leaders over a singular congregation. Alright? Does that make sense? Alright. We call our body of elders a session, and that usually causes people to go, huh? Okay? So let me explain the word session. Session, this is just right out of the dictionary. A meeting of deliberative or judicial body to conduct its business. Okay? So in our church, we have a couple of elders who are not on the session. They're not actively involved in the deliberative process of our congregation. So we're talking about session. We're talking about those who are actively right now in that uh, mode, in that office or in that capacity. Does that make sense? Okay. Because we have actually a, we have a rotation schedule. This is the first church I've ever been in that we actually had a rotation schedule. So you can be in be on the session for three years, you can re-up for three years, but you have to be off for one year at least, okay? It's when they go off, they're no longer part of the session. So the session is that deliberative, judicial, if you want to use the definition from the dictionary, okay? So if you hear us use the word session, we're talking about those who are, who are actually actively being elders right now. Any questions about any of this? Am I boring you? Okay. I hope not. Uh, very quickly, let's go to 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 17. By the way, uh, about four of you asked me several questions uh, about all of this, and all the answers are 
here, okay? We've already started answering some of those questions. What's the difference between deacons and elders? That was one question. The other one is, what's the difference between elders and a pastor? Okay, so this is what we're going to look at now. So 1 Timothy 5, somebody read verse 17. So a way that we've always understood that is that Paul is referring to the body of elders and in that is a division of labor. Okay, there are those who are primarily focused on preaching and teaching and so very much proclaiming the gospel and thus dispensing the gospel sacraments and then there are those who are primarily leading and guiding and ruling in in several ways. So, a little, not necessarily artificially because it's actually meant to reflect 1 Timothy 5 verse 117, or 1 Timothy 5, 17, we call the two group, the two types of elders in a, in a session, we call them teaching elders and ruling elders. So I'm a teaching elder, um, uh, Alan and Scott and uh, Neil, Neil's in a Sunday school class, Neil and um, Bill Rui, they're ruling elders, okay? So we just make that distinction, it's a division of labor distinction. Does that make sense? Thank you. Okay, very good. So, uh, so when you hear those terms, that's what we're referring to. Sometimes we'll just say pastors and elders, but we're still talking about the same body of leaders. Okay. So I've mentioned this before. I just want you to know that this was the this was pretty much the polity, the the church government, for several hundred years after the New Testament, from the New Testament on. So, for example, I want to quote to you from Ignatius of Antioch as he wrote a letter to the Tralians. This is about 110 A.D., okay? So he's talking to one church, the Tralians of that, the, the, the Christian, the church at uh, Tralias. Similarly, let everyone respect the deacons as Jesus Christ just as they should respect the bishop who is a model of the Father and the presbyters as God's counsel and as the band of the apostles. Without these deacons, bishop, elders. Without these, no group can be called a church. And all the way through Ignatius's letters, what you see uh, is you see basically what we actually practice. We don't use this language this way, but this is what we practice, right? So probably the preacher, the teaching elder was called the bishop by this point, while the rest of the elders were called presbyters. Well, we've done the same thing, teaching elders, ruling elders, whatever. But notice what he's talking about. In a local church, you don't have a real church, a local church, until you have deacons, elders, and, you know, and then he talks about the bishop, the preacher, let's say, okay? But I want you to see early on, the idea was not the bishop was over multiple churches, right? And the presbyters were not over multiple churches. It was multiple leaders in a single church. And it was that way a long time. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm baffling. Am I baffling? I got it. Okay. Yeah, there there are groups of sects that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are there are little sects out there where that's the case, where every male is an elder of the church and never appointed. Okay, and that let me just tell you from experience, that is a nightmare. 
They all have to have beards and high collars. All right, so just to summarize here, so therefore in the local congregation we have a body of deacons leading us all to deacon. They spearhead service and generosity. Secondly, we also have a body of shepherds, elders, overseers who guide and care for the congregation, their spiritual formation, the growth of the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Jesus Christ. And then within the body of elders, there's a division of labor, just teaching elders who focus on teaching, proclaiming the gospel, dispensing the gospel, sacraments, etc. And ruling elders also are concerned um, with teaching as well as other aspects of caring and shepherding. And uh, in case I didn't make this clear, teaching elders and ruling elders have to show that they're on, uh, we call it a parity, they have the same vote. So a teaching elder doesn't have a vote times 10 versus a ruling elder, right? It's the same exact vote, okay? And, which is great. It's great when you get into uh, discussion in our session meetings, and sometimes I think I have it all figured out. <laughs> and then the elders say, you know, have you thought about this? Oh, no, I didn't, actually. You know, so it's really cool how that works because it does help, I think it actually helps us as a congregation to steer correctly. So, because if it all depended on me, we would all be in trouble. So that's an overview just of the local church and the leadership in the local church. Any questions at all? I have some place to go when we get done with this, but any questions at all? Okay. So next week, we'll continue with church government. What we'll do is we're going to actually look at our connection uh, from within the local congregation to in the presbytery. Okay? And then how that works in the denomination stuff. Okay? So we're going to actually move more outside of the local congregation. I'm, I'm looking at Tony just because we've had some discussions, but for all of us, we're going to move into that aspect of church government. So come back with rapt attention and lots of coffee. All right. So um, can I get some help here? So this is... Um, take one and pass it around. So you saw emails. I gave a briefing on Presbytery early in February, and I told you that I had put forth an overture. I read the overture to you, and then uh, that week um, I showed you, I sent to you also uh, Jay Bruce's overture and so forth, um, and I told you that as the chairman of the AC, the administrative committee, my overture got referred back to the administrative committee. And so our administrative committee had to meet for other reasons, and therefore we got to talk about the overtures. And so what happened was we now had two overtures. Uh, and what this is, this all has to do with the, the overture 23 and 37 that they got voted down and so forth. What happened was, um, and there's uh, our standing rules tell us we can do this, we called for a special presbytery. You have to have a certain number of ruling elders from different churches and teaching elders from different churches to call for a special presbytery. We called for a special presbytery uh, to deal just with these overtures. I mean, we dealt with two other things, uh, just receiving Wilson Van Hooser's ordination and dismissing Doug's servant to Baltimore so he could transfer to the Baltimore Presbytery. But the other part of our special called presbytery was just to deal with these overtures. Okay, and so what happened, and it was, a, it was actually... There were, um, I counted in my head, I counted 12 of our 22 churches or 12 of our 19 particular churches were there 
and we had around 44 ruling elders and teaching elders. So it's about half, about half of our presbytery, but it was the quorum. It was more than a quorum, okay, according to our book of church order. And so it was a good discussion. We actually were done within two hours from the time we started at 10 to the time we left at around 12. It just took us two hours, which I was really pleased with. And the discussion was good. It was uh, folks from uh, Charlotte, uh, from uh, Covenant in Fayetteville and um, Great Trinity Grace. Chris Taylor was there. Uh, and then we had River Oaks was there. We were there. They were just from across the spectrum of our presbytery. And the discussion was good. The discussion was uh, really, really beneficial. It was amazing. I think that what helped was the fact that everybody realized they were all on the same page. We all agreed. We've always agreed. Homosexuality is a sin. We're not out there drawing in homosexuals. We're not out there coddling homosexuals. We all agree with that. And so the biggest part of the discussion was just wording this. So they decided not to go with my overture, which was fine, because in the end, the reason I put up my overture, and I told you this before, was just to get the ball rolling. And I succeeded. Woo! Got the ball rolling. Okay? Here was the result. This was Dr. J. Bruce's overture. He's at Fayette, uh, Covenant in Fayetteville. He's a professor also at John Brown University. Um, and you can read all the whereases. I will not read those for you, but I would encourage you to read them because what he does is he draws from Scripture and he also draws from the uh, Ad Interim Committee on Human Sexuality that was approved at last General Assembly. He draws in. In fact, the overture he came up with is almost... Uh, uh, I think almost every sentence comes right out of the, that report. Okay? The idea is to take that study report and now bring it in and make it part of our denominational constitution. Okay? So I'm going to read the overture to you. It's down on the back. No, it's on the bottom. So the actual request here. Um, therefore, it, be it resolved that Hills and Plains Presbytery, PCA, overture the 49th General Assembly to amend the Book of Church Order, Chapter 16, by the addition of the following paragraph. BCO 16.4, that's where Overture 23 was trying to get put in, so you'll notice the intention here. Officers of the Presbyterian Church in America, those sound in, faith, in the faith and living lives according to godliness, are well served when they can be honest about both their present fallen realities and their hope for sanctification. Their goal is not just consistent fleeing from and regular resistance to temptation, but the diminishment and even the end of the occurrences of sinful desires. Desires that are inconsistent with God's design are to be resisted and mortified, not celebrated or accommodated, to juxtapose identities rooted in sinful desires alongside the term Christian is inconsistent with biblical language and undermines the spiritual reality that they are new creations in Christ. Sometimes they are dis- there are disagreements about, the lang- about language, even when the underlying doctrinal commitments seem to be the same, and how persons express themselves is not finally determinative of their identity. And so that's what's been sent already to the Overtures Committee at General Assembly. It got sent 30 minutes after Presbytery was over. It was out of the... If there were 44 guys, which is what I counted, if there were 44 elders there... Uh, 42 voted for this and only two voted against it, okay? So it was just hugely overwhelming, all right? So I just wanted to read that to you. Make sure you had a copy. I'll, if you want, if you need me to, I can send it out by email tomorrow as well. Probably will anyways. Any questions about the overture and what it's doing or what it's trying to do? 
So remember, this is going to start a year-long process. Okay? So first off, once it goes to Overtures Committee, it's also going to go to the, the Committee of Constitutional Business because it's going to be dealing with the BCO. If it makes it out of there, it probably won't look like what it looks like. They will probably work on it some more, see if there's any language that needs to be tightened up. Okay? There's the possibility some could read this in a little Wesleyan fashion, um, for example. Uh, and so they may tighten some of the language up and so forth, but that will get on the floor of General Assembly. By the way, Jay Bruce, who actually put forth this overture, is on the Overtures Committee. <laughs> so he will be well represented. Okay? He will represent our Presbytery. And so if it makes it out, it's always possible that it's ruled out of order for some reason or what other. Okay, so that always happens. If it makes it through, it'll probably not look just like this. It'll probably be a little bit different. And then it would go to General Assembly, which is the last full week of June. And uh, it will be voted on at General Assembly. And then once it's voted on, if it's voted up, in other words, if it's a voted majority yes, it will go back out the same process to the presbyteries. Two-thirds of our 88 presbyteries, that's 59 or something like that, have to vote yes for it. That's 59. So they have to vote yes for it. If it gets voted yes, then it goes back to General Assembly 2023 and it gets voted on again at General Assembly. If it gets voted in, then it will be changed. It'll be a change to the BCF. Just remember that process. It's a long process. It's meant for us. We are a Presbyterian system. We are meant to be slow and a little sluggish so that we can take the time to think these things out and not be reactionaries. And I cannot stress that enough. Okay? And so when you're listening to radio shows and so forth that want you to change everything right now, stop and go, but we're Presbyterians. We do things in good order. You know, and that's intentional. Alright? Yes. It's summarizing, yeah, it's summarizing the, you have to go back and read the ad hoc, ad interim committee's report on human sexuality. It's summarizing that section on identity. So it's actually a summary statement and not necessarily a direct quote, but that was the intention, okay? So the idea is um, on one side, so let's say that Fred's going to AA. He doesn't go to AA, but let's just say Fred goes to AA. Well, if you've ever been to AA, Fred then always introduces himself as, hi, my name is Fred, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Well, what in the world does Fred mean by that? Does that mean that he's enslave this, he's an alcoholic Christian or anything like that, you'd have to ask him. That's kind of the idea about we can be doctrinal, have the same doctrinal commitments, but we express ourselves sometimes. Uh, that expression is not determinative. Doesn't, wouldn't disqualify Fred from being an elder. We'd have to ask him, what do you mean by I'm a recovering alcoholic? Well, what I mean is, you know, Jesus has given me victory. I'm set free. But I know that if I take another drink, it's probably going to go to Hades in a handbasket. Right? Right. 
And that's what this is. I mean, all these are acting. We're acting on these things. But how do we say this correctly? Because you've got to remember, and this is the intentions. This is why the Overtures Committee is really important at General Assembly, is that what you don't want to do is roll up your newspaper and go after a fly and end up breaking the window and the vase. And that has happened before. We have to be careful. That's why it's the carefulness of it. So if it goes through like this, this will have been being two years of this, of these of overture stuff. If it goes through, we're actually, it's actually helpful because it's helping us to actually put the right language in for the good of our people. Does that make sense? And that's really important. Yes, Lee. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love it. So, yeah. Does that answer your question, Andrew? Well, that was, yeah. So that was, that was, the, that was the part that when, when the discussion was going on yesterday, that was the part that was added, okay, because somebody did bring up that we need to bring in that section uh, in the AIC report on identities, and we need to actually address it. And so was it the best language, perfect language? No. But, and that's what we're hopeful as well. So it was already, we already approved it, Senate, uh, the General Assembly, and we're hoping that that engagement will take care, help us take care of that. So, and you... That's always important. We're not infallible, so right. only the Holy Spirit can do that. Good. Anybody else? All right, so I want you to have that, and that, like I said, is sent to General Assembly, um, and you'll hear about that uh, after we come back from General Assembly, because we'll figure out what's going to happen by that point, so in reference to that overture. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, thank you so much for your kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, that you want multiple leaders in local churches. You call, you know, you care about us. You want us to be led in ways that serve and show the love of Christ and the gospel of Christ to other people. We thank you for that. We pray that you would bless all of our deacons and our elders, Lord, and that they um, would be strengthened and encouraged in what they're doing. I pray that all of us are encouraged. Prepare our hearts, Lord, and our minds now as we get ready to enter into the, gen- the great assembly, Lord and to sit around your feet, to gather around your feet, to worship and adore you, to do so in the power of the Spirit, to do so in the name of Christ, to do so for the glory and honor of our Father in heaven. Amen. Thank you.